0: Welcome to the Data Diaries podcast and this special series on leading through the COVID-19 crisis for visitor attractions executives with your host, Angie Judge, Chief Executive of Exhibit Big Data Analytics for Visitor Attractions. So hello and welcome. It is a pleasure today to be here coming to you from opposite sides of the globe with Elizabeth Merritt, Futurist and Founding Director at the Center for the Future of Museums for American Alliance of Museums. Hello Elizabeth and welcome. Firstly how are you and what is life like where you are today?
1: Hello Angie. Uh, today I am teleworking from my home in Washington DC where the streets are weirdly quiet and the neighborhood kids are filling their windows and sidewalks with art.
0: Very cute. And the last time you and I saw each, saw each other was in Miami last year. Uh, we were doing a futurism workshop around museums and AI, and you were encouraging us to imagine what felt like very hilarious futures. And yet here we wake up into a future that none of us could have imagined. It feels like some sort of strange movie that we can't switch off.
1: Well, that's the purpose of future studies. Um, it helps us exercise our imagination so that we aren't surprised when we find ourselves in futures we didn't expect. <laughs> but point out that in fact many many people have been telling us for years to expect this particular future. Uh, So futurists categorize pandemics as massively disruptive events that we know are gonna happen, we just don't know exactly when they'll occur. But many researchers have said for some time that the next pandemic was probably going to be sometime soon. Uh, For example the World Health Organization began modeling the next pandemic virus in 2018. And last October, uh, the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security did a war game about what would happen if the new coronavirus swept the globe. And they call the scenario Event 201. You read over it, and it's really spooky how much it's like what's actually happening. Uh, And museums, I just want to point out, museums have been foreseeing the this future too. The Museum of London presented an exhibit in 2018 called Disease X that explored the history of epidemics in London and challenged visitors to think about what the next pandemic would be. I've been trying to get hold of their staff to ask them what they learned from doing the exhibit. I, I also feel a little validated because one of the first projects I ran when the Center for the Future of Museums launched back in 2008 was to muster a cadre of museum people to participate in Superstruct, which was a massive multiplayer online forecasting game that was created by the Institute for the Future. And one of the global threats that Institute for the Future invented for the game was a global pandemic called REDS, Respiratory Distress Syndrome. Again, eerily prescient. And one of the challenges for players including the museum people was figuring out how we would navigate a world in which people could only congregate in very small groups
0: so i imagine that the sorts of futures that we're planning for are going to look very very different in different parts of the world and that's largely going to be driven by the end games our governments are pursuing um, i came across a piece by uh, john daly who uh, wrote about three scenarios He talked about the flatten the curve we've heard a lot about, such as within the UK, um, trace and track, like what's happening in Taiwan, and then stop and restart, um, i.e. domestic eradication, uh, which is what uh, my home country is doing. Do you think that those end games are going to impact the sorts of strategies that museums and other visitor attractions should be pursuing?
1: I actually thought it was interesting that Daly called those scenarios end games, because we all get to the same point in the long term, sure. hopefully, a world in which we have some combination of widespread natural immunity and an effective vaccine. Of course, the number of people who die along the way varies depending on how we get there, but I thought he did a really good job sketching out three potential ways of getting to that future. So the the immediate question for museums uh, and visitor attractions and all public-serving businesses is how long are we going to be closed? How long are we going to go with no income from admission and sales and rentals? Daly's second scenario, trace and track, is already unrealistic here in the U.S. We have too many active cases, and there's no effective way of locking down the borders, either of the country or the or borders between states. His last scenario, which was stop everything and then restart, would require a government mandated full stop for at least two weeks. And that isn't likely to happen in the US either. At least it doesn't seem likely so far. We mostly have a patchwork of local and state shutdowns. I suspect that those two scenarios, tracking or a full stop um, are more feasible for countries, for example, with strong central governments with broad powers like China and Singapore. And, And correct me if I'm wrong, But those also tend to be countries where museums are either government funded or in some cases founded and supported by wealthy individuals. And in those cases, I hope they potentially have a deeper economic buffer during an extended closure. Unfortunately, US museums need to spend most of their effort preparing for Daly's first scenario, flatten the curve, which he thinks could result in a full year of dampening social and economic activity. So that's a long time to hunker down.
0: It is. And there's this other great article doing the rounds at the moment about the inevitable hammer in the dance, as it's called, which talks about the extreme mitigation strategies that most countries are taking at this point, namely stay at home lockdowns. And that's what they call the hammer. And that's a phase that might last, say, three to seven weeks or more. But then in places where that isn't enough to eliminate the, the virus. Uh, being most countries, th- this dance afterwards to keep it under control thereafter until we get a vaccine. So, in some countries where relative control is possible, that could go on for a, a very, very long time. We're talking about more than a year, right? What what could opening look like under those sorts of situations? Are we are we talking about opening, then shutting down, then opening again at intervals? Is it reduced opening days or hours, capacity constraints, no events? How on earth do you plan for that?
1: Yes, I've heard about the hammer and dance. I've heard it called intermittent distancing. As a matter of fact, researchers at Harvard School of Public Health just released an article suggesting that one long lockdown is not going to be sufficient to curb the spread of coronavirus, and we're going to have to go through multiple cycles. As we get more data, we'll be able to create better models of what those cycles of opening up and locking down are going to look like and how long each part of the cycle lasts. And I'm hoping the better information will have a better idea of what to plan for. But whatever the periodicity of that cycle, it does suggest we have to start thinking about what it looks like for a museum to integrate physical distancing into its operations when it can be open. This isn't an entirely new idea. When, I remember when the Pulitzer Art Foundation was being planned for St. Louis in Missouri, I read an article, an interview with Emily Pulitzer, in which case she said she originally envisioned it as being limited to 50 visitors at a time, so they could experience the art and the building, which is gorgeous. It's designed by Tadao Ando, in almost in relative isolation. And here, near my hometown, uh, the Glenstone Museum, which is in Potomac, Maryland does limit visitation by requiring people to purchase tickets in advance. I think they cap it at 450 people per day and that's a pretty big museum so they're pretty spread out. And I've begun to see some museums offering special hours to members um, or to people willing to pay a higher ticket price when they can have the museum practically to themselves. So some museums may be able to operate that way but most museums are designed physically and economically around serving large numbers of people at once, whether that's school groups, tour groups, or everyone who wants to flock to the museum on a Saturday afternoon. Maybe one thing museums could do is to try and spread out the demand by expending their, extending their hours and encouraging people to come when the museum's only lightly populated. But of course, if you have longer hours, that means more staffing, and then you get caught in a loop mm. of earning enough to employ the people you need to support the new way of operating. Uh, one article i read recently suggested the new normal will mean that when public spaces reopen places like restaurants and museums they should operate at half capacity but that means half the usual income so yes this is going to be challenging
0: so i know a lot of the visitor attractions we work with are planning to be shut until at least july but perhaps the economy might be encouraged to reopen sooner rather than later if if you have the option How do you make the decision that balances ethics versus economics? Do you think we'll see a bit of a standoff if government tells its public places to reopen and they choose not to, especially in the case of those publicly funded venues?
1: Well, in the U.S., and I'm sorry I keep saying that, but that's where I'm based, and this is where most of my knowledge comes from. Um, In the U.S., most museums are private nonprofits, so they're governed by independent boards of trustees. And I anticipate that as local and state authorities that have instituted lockdowns, um, they will at some point raise those restrictions and tell businesses you can reopen. And at that point, museum leaders are gonna have to make some really careful and responsible decisions about when it's appropriate to resume operations and in what form. It's gonna be a fraught decision because museum leaders want to serve the public and they want to rehire their staff, but they don't want to endanger lives. And of course, it isn't as stark as economics versus ethics. Uh, To be supportive employers, museums have to continue to exist. To create good jobs with good benefits, including health insurance, they have to be financially successful.
0: It's such a dilemma, isn't it? We're we're all operating off our business continuity plans at the moment and writing the playbook for navigating this thing as we go. But... Uh, At what time do we need to call it and throw out the fancy 2020 on strategy that we all wrote up and essentially start to plan for a new normal? At at this point, do we need to realise that our situation is really a long-term change to our social fabric rather than just a crisis to respond to? I know the world has its hopes on its vaccine, but with potentially millions of opportunities to mutate, is, is that a risk that it's not possible? Do we plan for that yet? What is the strategy here? Well, in terms of when do we start saying
1: the world's going to be different, I would argue that time is now. So let's fast forward 18 months to the future we all hope we're going to live in, where we have an effective vaccine and COVID-19 is part of the inevitable background of seasonal infections. Even then, there's going to be lasting effects, social, economic, political. So for example, this will dramatize it. 25 years ago, the normal experience of air travel didn't involve stepping into a glass signal, c- cylinder and raising your arms for a millimeter wave scan. <laughs> that just never would have occurred to you. So maybe 25 years from now, it's going to be normal for all public spaces, including museums, to have thermal scanners that check to see if you're running a fever when you come in. Or you might be required to swipe your wrist that has an implanted ID chip and that verifies that your vaccinations are up to date. So. We don't know what that new future is going to look like, but we can watch how the world is changing to understand how we're going to have to adapt. Museums can't control most of the structural changes that are going to be shaping that environment. Last week, for example, okay, last week a senior federal reserve official here in the US said unemployment could hit 30% in the coming year. What's it like for any business to survive in that economy? It's going to be transformative. Maybe it will shift the U.S. towards uncoupling health insurance from employment and providing government-supported universal health care, which I realize is normal for most of the world, but we don't have it here. And there's an example of how things might create opportunities because with that kind of insurance, it might be easier for people in the U.S. to take jobs in the cultural sector. Some of the shifts are really going to be about people's attitudes. And I think a lot's gonna depend on as this immediate danger recedes, how people are gonna want to engage with public spaces. I can imagine maybe people will flock to restaurants and theaters and museums to make up for their extended social isolation. I'm remembering the story I saw about Ireland when they announced that the pubs would close, everybody ran out to go to the bars before they were (laughs) gonna be shut down. But on the other hand, you know, people could still be shy about congregating in groups. Museums could adapt to either situation. Uh, we're already one of the most trusted sectors in society. I could imagine that museums stake a claim as the absolutely safe places to go, clean and well-maintained, where people respect the need to give each other a little extra space. So it could be an opportunity for, for museums to be the go-to place when this uh, quarantine environment lifts. Uh, you asked, so you asked about a vaccine. Of course, I'm not a medical expert and I don't know what the chances are that we won't be able to create an effective vaccine. But as a futurist, I always look to history as a clue to where what things might be like. And I know that for most of human history, we lived with recurring waves of typhus and yellow fever and smallpox and malaria. And that wasn't desirable, but it wasn't the end of humanity as we know it. We'll adapt. I, I don't know if you see that as optimism or pessimism. But in any case, I think it's too early to worry about that scenario. So let's concentrate on making it through the next two years and then see where things stand with with medical um, advances and and the possibility of a vaccine.
0: So the typical equation, if we were to cross-section cultural institutions, is this third, a third, a third split between a reliance on government funding and then donations and then earned revenue. And that tends to differ a bit, for example, in museums between history and art and science. Who do you think is going to be hardest hit long term and where? I know going into this crisis, we had a number of museums already dealing with very delicate financial situations. Do you think we're going to see you know, structural changes to the industry, insolvency start to hit museums or the visitor attraction sector? What would be your advice to leaders who look at the future and see that sort of writing on the wall? Are there even going to be any winners in the field from this? Well, first of all, I'm I'm jealous of
1: anybody who gets a third of their funding from the government. (laughs) In the US, it's more like a third earned income, a third charitable and less than 20% from government funding Mm -hmm. with the rest made up from a draw on the museum's investment income. But as you said, that, that varies incredibly between organizations some types of museums like um, science centers and children's museums rely much more heavily on earned income while some museums with large endowments like a big art museum might get 20 percent or more of their operating income from their investments and those museums the museums that can draw on their investments or that have significant charitable or government support have a buffer from the immediate effects of this financial squeeze um, just look, let's look at philanthropy for a moment. Foundations are going out of their way to support their grantees. A large number of foundations have been signing a pledge that promises to loosen or eliminate restrictions on current grants, including like converting a project-based grant to unrestricted support. That's awesome. And they're also planning to make new grants as unrestricted as possible, because they want their nonprofit partners to have the maximum flexibility to survive this crisis. Mm. but many museums do depend on earned income week to week to pay the rent and utilities, not to mention salaries, and those museums are very vulnerable right now because the money isn't coming in. Our research shows, we did a a, report in 2017, Museum Board Leadership, that shows about a third of museums are dipping into their operating reserves in a normal year, and That bodes ill going into a time of unprecedented stress. Our CEO, Laura Lott, has warned this may indicate that a third of museums could close permanently in the next year. We're already collecting stories of museums that have had to lay off their staff while they're closed to the public. As they do so, my hope is that museum leaders will be able to balance pragmatism with compassion. Because that's very hard, of course, for the staff who need to survive until things reopen. You asked about winners. I I hate to frame this as winners and losers. I think when museums close, we all lose because Mm -hmm. that leaves such a gap in our lives and our communities. I do think we'll see that museums that have made themselves essential parts of their communities will be more likely to survive this crisis and they'll be better positioned for recovery.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And from a futurism perspective, what what advice would you give to leaders who are facing such an an unimaginable and uncertain future?
1: Well, one, have hope. We, meaning humanity, have survived worse Mm. and will survive this. And second, know that it's okay not to have all the answers. It's enough to be curious and brave and asking the right questions. And third, maybe most important, take care of yourselves. Take care of yourselves, take care of your staff, take care of your community that's how we collectively are going to get through the next year with compassion and kindness and generosity.
0: Such good advice. Put on your own mask before helping others. And so lastly, Elizabeth, where can our listeners go to read up on more of your work?
1: Oh yes. Thanks for asking. Uh, My colleagues and I at the American Alliance of Museums are working our tails off to compile all the useful information that we can about COVID-19 and how museums can respond. You can find that information on the AAM website at aam-us.org. We're also using our blogs to document examples of museums helping their communities through COVID and museums finding strategies to keep themselves afloat in these difficult financial times. And I would like to encourage our listeners to stay in touch with me on Facebook and Twitter where they can find me as Future of Museums.
0: Thank you so much, Elizabeth. It's um, It has been amazing to get this glimpse into our very strange new future together with you. Uh, to read more of the resources that we mentioned in this podcast, go to com forward slash podcast or uh, view the show notes. Um, to access our COVID-19 response resources for visitor attractions, including webinar recordings and scenario simulation tools, go to com forward slash COVID-19. And uh, to everyone out there listening today, I hope you're tucked up safe and sound with your families um, and keep well and warm in the coming months. Thanks very much, Elizabeth.
1: Thank you, Angie.